first, just a few words about um, programs that are coming up here over the next week. So you can attend in-person programs by booking at the ashram dot... Is this right? A-S dot M-E? That's unusual. Okay, confirmation, that's correct. Um, obviously, we have uh, satsang on Saturday at 7.15, Guru Gita chanting on Sunday at 8.30 a.m., and also Tuesday and Saturday at 7.30 a.m. We have study group on Tuesday at 7.30 p.m., San Giovanni Mantra and meditation on Wednesday at 7.30 p.m., and Shiva Process groups on Thursday at 7.30. And you can contact us directly for Shiva Process by emailing info at theashram.com.au. One big announcement, which is that we have our April retreat coming up very soon. It starts on April the 7th and it culminates with a full day intensive on Sunday the 11th. So if you have been practicing for some time and you want uh, another little kickstart to your practice or you're new to meditation and you want to establish a practice, there can be no better way than immersing yourself in a retreat here at the ashram. And I guess um, during this period, one good thing is that we have a lot of our programs online and indeed this can be taken online as well. So if you do want to attend in person or you want to tune in online, book at theashram.com.au. Welcome uh, to Satsang. Everybody here and everybody in Radio Land, welcome. <coughs> and I always like to begin by quoting Baba. We begin every program by saying in Hindi, Sabko Barisan Mani Kesat Pemse Hardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And that was his watchword, his saying, his, his uh, yantra, his tantra, his mantra. And he would say that uh, and mean that. And it was a teaching for all of us to welcome another person with love. Love is the great elixir. Love is the great teacher. Love is the great elevator. And where hatred and anger and spite and jealousy diminishes everyone, contracts everyone, makes everyone miserable, love expands everything. And love is a connection with the divine. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you all. And Baba, <coughs> a couple of quotes from Baba. Uh, well, this is actually a quote that Baba used from a, a Sufi saint named Bayaji. Baba, of course, loved the Sufis. They're the mystical branch of Islam. <clears throat> and uh, Bayaji said, how can one who cannot get out of hell go to heaven? One who does not understand the darkness of night cannot understand the light of morning. So it's a call here to experience, to, to we have to know the darkness, the opposite, and embrace it and find the divine in that, and then we can attain. And then Baba himself said, wonderful statement of Baba's, <clears throat> I'm a Baba statement junkie, by the way. 
it, it seems to me that that uh, his he had uh, Vach City, he had Mantra City, that his words were mantras and his teachings were nectar. So he said this. He said, "Keep walking on the path. Do not look behind, nor very far ahead. Otherwise, you'll become frightened." If you keep walking, you will reach your destination. Then you'll find that the guru is with you and you are with him. So just keep doing the practice. Patanjali says to do the practice for a long time with loving devotion. And just keep doing your practice. Do your meditation, do your mantra, contemplate the divine, do self-inquiry, and don't even think, where am I? What have I attained? And one day you'll discover attainment is there. So this is Baba. And tonight, uh, my earliest uh, Indian sage, the, the one that, uh, the first Indian sage that I, I met on my journey, I didn't meet him, but I came across and I was told about him. Uh, and I've had a long relationship with him, even though he left his body around 1950. <clears throat> and that, of course, is Sri Ramana the Maharishi, or Maharshi, the great sage Ramana. <clears throat> that, that's the iconic uh, photograph of him. Late in life, uh, a great yogi, full of love, full of compassion, and also full of wisdom. What else do we have? <clears throat> That's earlier. And of course, uh, I've told the story so many times, but you can't escape telling it, at least in some form. Ramana uh, spontaneously uh, became enlightened or realized God at the tender age of 16. Here you see him about uh, at the age of about 20, a few years afterwards. He was a normal schoolboy on the face of it, and suddenly had this experience. Uh, he describes it in detail. Fear of death overcame him, and instead of freaking out or going to the doctor, he lay down and began spontaneously to inquire, if I die, what will die? And he went through a process. It wasn't intellectual like that. It was a, a visceral and emotional process. And in the space of about 20 minutes, he attained the self. He had the darshan of the experience of the self, which never left him from then on. And without his knowing it, he turned into a great sage in those 20 minutes. He had no idea, um, but something had happened to him. Uh, and then many circumstances happened, and a few weeks later, he left home, and he was drawn to the holy mountain of Arunachala in South India, which he always thought of as his guru, this mountain. And he spent the rest of his life uh, under that mountain. Then an ashram sprang up around him, uh, <clears throat> and he became world famous, as we'll hear later. What else? Do we have one more? Uh, here he is, late in life, sitting uh, out with the devotees, sitting in his bed, and giving darshan. Is that it for now? There's one more now? Ah, here he is. A lot of devotees have come. He's sitting there giving darshan. Of course, he was famous for 
teaching the path of self-inquiry, precisely to inquire who am I and to get in touch with the self, the current of the self, and hold that current. <clears throat> so, Ramana. <clears throat> First, I'll give you a sample of uh, his essential teachings. He taught a very pure form of Vedanta. This is uh, from a conversation that happened in 1935. The devotee says, however much I struggle to find it, the I is not perceptible. That's not this I, it's the self. He struggles to find it, the self is not. Ramana says, who is it that says that I is not perceptible? <laughs> That's what he always says. Who is it that says that? Because he always wants you to look and see, it's me, it's I, <laughs> to find the self. He says, in truth, it is the mind that says that I is not perceptible. The mind. Find out about the mind. Where is the mind from? Know the mind. King Janaka said, I have discovered the thief who has been ruining me so long. I will now deal with him. Then I shall be happy. Ramana says, that thief is nothing but the mind. Yogis, meditators know that the greatest thief of your happiness is your own mind, not external circumstances. It's the mind. If we could only understand the mind and work creatively and properly with the mind, we would be in a state of bliss. Ramana says, when you learn to deal with the mind, then it is true that happiness will be experienced. It's as simple as that. This is what the great yogis say. This bit here doesn't even have a physical location, really. That bit, if we could handle it intelligently, would reveal great happiness. In other words, what the yogis say is that happiness is already there. It's this that covers it up. So learn to deal with the mind. Ramana says, what is true for Janaka will be true for others as well. Devotee, how to know the I? <laughs> I think it went right over his head. How to know the self? Ramana says, the I, I is always there. And all the books on Ramana always talk about the I hyphen I. And by that he means the current of self-awareness as I. So if you think, think I, think, think I, I, what, what is that I that you think of referred to when you say I? You say I all day long. I do this, I want that, I don't want that. I feel this, I believe that. You know, who is that I that you're talking about? And I, I means that awareness in time to keep that awareness, to remember the self. So feel that I, 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 as a current. Ramana says, hold that current. Hold that current. He says, it's not new knowledge to be acquired. What is new and not here and now will be evanescent only. 
He often said that. If, if It's not like learning mathematics or chemistry. This is new knowledge. Uh, because whatever you learn will disappear just as quickly. It's always there. You already know it. This is one of the great paradoxes. This is a knowledge we already have, yet we don't recognize it. We don't understand it. He says, on the contrary, the eye is always there. There is something that obstructs its knowledge, and that is called ignorance. <laughs> In Vedanta, they talk about maya, the veil that hangs over our minds, that keeps us from knowing the self. If it's so simple that the self is always with us, why don't we know it? Why is it so damn hard to do it? Why is sadhana so difficult? Because of this principle of ignorance, of maya. He says, if you remove the ignorance, true knowledge shines forth. He always makes it sound like very simple equations, you know, like high school equations. Just remove the ignorance, just control the mind, and the self is there. He says, in fact, this ignorance and even this knowledge have nothing to do with the self. They're only overgrowths to be cleared away. That is why the self is said to be beyond both knowledge and ignorance. It simply remains as it naturally is. That is all. So it's always there. It's not to be developed or attained. It's always there. It's just to be uncovered. The devotee, and devotees in speaking to Ramana, always don't understand him. <laughs> they always say, yeah, they look at, look at him, yeah, well, but I can't do it. So this one says, there's no perceptible progress in spite of our attempts. So Ramana says, you can speak of progress when you're building something that you wish to achieve. Here, this is not the case. Here, there is not a progressive acquisition of knowledge, but simply the removal of ignorance. What kind of progress can be expected in the quest for the self? And the Ramana says, I mean, the devotee says, I see. The thing is to remove the ignorance. How to do that? <laughs> exactly. These are good questions. Uh, Ramana says, this is very curious. While lying in bed in Trivanamalai, you dream in your sleep and you find yourself in another town. That's the local town there. The scene is real to you. Your body remains here on your bed in a room. Can a town enter your room? Or could you have left this place and gone elsewhere leaving the body? Both are impossible. The eye of the dream soon vanishes. Then another eye speaks of the dream. I had a dream, it's this eye. This eye was not in a dream. Both the eyes are unreal. This is the substratum of the mind which continues all along, giving rise, there is the substratum of the mind, which gives rise to so many scenes. An eye rises forth with every thought, and with its disappearance, that eye disappears too. This reminds me of Gurdjieff's teaching. He said there are many eyes. So he says with every thought, a different eye, a different ego rises up. And it's certainly true that different emotions have different eyes. I mean, you're a different person when you're angry 
you think different things, you'll do different things, you'll say different things. And when you're depressed, another person emerges, you say different things, you do different things, you behave a certain way. And so there are many eyes, Gurdjieff used to say, many eyes within us, but behind them all is the substratum of the true I, the I am. He says, uh, I love that idea that a, a new eye arises with every thought. Many eyes are born and die every moment, he says. The underlying mind is the real trouble. That is the thief, according to Janaka. Find him out. You will discover that he is, in truth, the self of all, and you'll be happy. If you find out who the mind is, you discover that he is actually the self. In its fundamental nature, the mind is consciousness. The mind is the self going out through the senses, observing the world. But when you go to the source of the mind, the source of the I, you discover it merges back in the self. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> so that's uh, his essential teaching. How are we doing? <clears throat> I've got um, I've got another sort of bit of teaching, but uh, and then some really charming things. You know, I I found uh, in the last year or two, I came across a book called Letters from the Ashram by Suri Nagama, who was a woman who lived in the ashram for many years. And she was, uh, she, she got married at some ridiculously early age, as they do in India, nine or eleven. Uh, and then she became widowed the next year. Her husband died, and so they didn't remarry her, but they didn't educate her either. Uh, anyway, but she was incredibly intelligent person and very spiritual, and she turned to the uh, spiritual path very naturally. And her brother was a bit of a seeker and he went around and he went to Ramana's ashram and he met Ramana and he told his sister, you know, you might like this sage and you know, go there. So she visited the ashram and she said, I want to live here. And she did. She spent the rest of her life with Ramana. And she wasn't educated, but she was really smart. And she started writing down everything Ramana said and started to mull over and think about the teaching. And she wrote letters to her brother from the ashram, hence letters from the ashram. And they were collected and they're a wonderful book, possibly the best book, in my, in my opinion, the best book on Ramana because uh, she tells not only, gives not only the teaching but remarkable personal stories of Ramana, and his personality is so charming and so adorable, when you just hear the, the, the cold teachings, you just think he's some kind of who am I machine. But he wasn't that at all. He was very uh, adorable, somewhat naive in a sense. <clears throat> but here's one, here's one of them. I've got a few. This one's more on the teaching side. She writes, this is 1948. Ramana died in 1950, so he's quite elderly then. 
Yesterday afternoon, a devotee approached Bhagavan, he was called Bhagavan, and said, Swami, for one who's realized his self, it is said that he will not have the three states of wakefulness, dream, and deep sleep. Is that a fact? There's so many um, extraordinary uh, myths that arise. You meet a great being, and it's very mysterious. I met a number of great beings in India. They're quite mysterious. So then devotees start projecting all kinds of things on them. Inner, they imagine what their inner uh, process is like. So sometimes they say, well, they don't sleep. They don't dream. They're just like this. They're like that. So that's what uh, he's, he, he's saying. And Bhagavan answers. Bhagavan said kindly, what makes you say that they do not have the three states? In other words, saying that even sages have waking dream and deep sleep, like everybody else. In saying that I had a dream, I was in deep sleep, I am awake, you must admit that you are there in all the three states. So I said, I say I had a dream, so I was there in the dream. I, was a, I had deep sleep, I was there in deep sleep. So the I was there. That makes it clear that you are there all the time. If you remain as you are now, you're in the wakeful state. This becomes hidden in the dream state. And the dream state disappears when you're in deep sleep. You were then, you are, you were there then, you are there now, and you are there at all times. The three states come and go. So he's saying that the self is always there, and these states come and go on the self that don't affect the self. <clears throat> You're always there. It's like a cinema, he says. The screen is always there. Several types of pictures appear on the screen and disappear. This is one of his favorite metaphors from uh, how, how pictures are projected on a screen. The screen is the self, and the mind is like the different images on it. Nothing sticks to the screen, it remains a screen. Similarly, you remain your own self in all the three states. If you know that, the three states won't trouble you, just as the pictures which appear on the screen do not stick to it. So if the screen is a realized screen, it doesn't mean there aren't movies that are projected on it. It always knows it's the screen, not the movie. So the same way a sage knows it's the self, not the passing thoughts and states. <clears throat> On the screen, you sometimes see a huge ocean with endless waves that disappears. Another time, you see fire spreading all around. That, too, disappears. The screen is there on both occasions. Did the screen get wet with the water? Did it get burned by the fire? Nothing affected the screen. In the same way, the things that happen during the wakeful dream and deep sleep states do not affect you at all. You remain your own self. Good, isn't it? The question is, uh, does that mean that although people have all three states, wakefulness, dream, and deep sleep, these do not affect the people? Ramana. Yes, that is. That's it. All these states come and go. The self is not bothered. It has only one state. 
part of us that's bothered is not the self. Self always is. <clears throat> Question that. Does that mean that such a person will be in this world merely as a witness? Ramana. That is so. For this very thing, Vidyaranya, in the 10th chapter of the Panchadasi, gives an example. Vidyaranya is a Vedantic sage, and Panchadasi is his famous work. Um, he gives us an example of the light that's kept at the stage of a theater. When a drama is being played, the light is there, which illuminates without any distinction all the actors, whether they be kings or servants or dancers, and also the audience. That light will also be there before the drama begins, during the performance and also after the performance is over. Similarly, the light within, that is the self, gives light to the ego, the intelligence, the mind and the lower mind, without itself being subject to growth and decay. So the self illumines our experience because it is consciousness. <clears throat> Although during deep sleep and other states there's no feeling of the ego, that self remains without attributes and continues to shine of itself. That is the meaning. There will be no doubts whatsoever if one finds out who one is and what one is by self-inquiry. So stop bothering me with all these questions. Ask yourself who you are. Look within. He wants people to introspect and not to listen to theories or read books and so on, but to actually go inside and grapple with the question, who am I? And get in touch with the feeling sense of I and hold that feeling sense. <clears throat> Okay, now two uh, adorable ones. You ready? Okay, this is another uh, letter from Surinagama. <clears throat> this is 1946. She writes her brother, the Europeans whom you sent with a letter of introduction came here by car the day before yesterday. So the brother said, go, go to the ashram. <clears throat> An American lady also came with them. Yesterday morning, they went round the town, and after visiting Skandashram, that was, uh, that's another ashram on the hill where he, early days he'd spent there, uh, reached the, the ashram by midday. After making all arrangements for the return journey, they came into the hall by 3 p.m. and sat down. Unaccustomed to squatting on the floor, that poor American lady somehow managed to sit by my side, but stretched out her legs towards Bhagavan's sofa. So Bhagavan's on the sofa, and she stretched out her legs. Now, <clears throat> if you've been to India, you know that that's a no-no. You're, you're not supposed to point your feet at uh, anyone. Certainly not the... the image in a, in a temple or the sage. But she didn't know. <clears throat> she says, I felt, I myself felt it unmannerly, but kept quiet as she was to go away presently. One of the attendants, Raj Gopal Iyer, could not, however, put up with it. <laughs> and so respectfully suggested to her to sit cross-legged. Bhagavan saw that, Ramana, 
and said smilingly, when they find it difficult even to sit down on the floor, should you force them to sit cross-legged also? He didn't like that. No, no, as they do not know that it's disrespectful to stretch their legs towards me, I merely, <clears throat> oh, no, no, the devotee says, sorry. The devotee said to him, no, no, they don't know it's disrespectful. I, I merely told them, that's all. And Brahmana said, oh, is that so? Is it disrespectful, is it? Then it's disrespectful for me to stretch my legs towards them. What you say applies to me as well. Saying that in a lighter vein, Bhagwan sat up cross-legged. <laughs> we have a picture of him uh, with his legs stretched out. There, there he is. So leave that up while I do this. <clears throat> so then he sat up like a yogi. All of us laughed, but we felt a, we felt a bit troubled in our minds. This is how Ramana fried them <clears throat> by, uh, uh, what do they call that? What is that? Reverse what? Reverse psychology. Well, passive, <laughs> passive aggressive, yes, passive aggressive. Because he's very sweet, but he would do these things. Those foreigners stayed there for about half an hour and then went away, taking leave of Bhagavan. Bhagavan spent the whole of yesterday stretching out his legs from time to time and then folding them, saying that it might be deemed disrespectful. <laughs> he had a lot of uh, rheumatism and difficulty. His legs get stiff in 10 minutes if he folds them, and the stiffness will not disappear unless the legs are stretched out for at least half an hour afterwards, not to speak of the pain that results. This afternoon when I went into the hall, there were not more than two or three persons there. Bhagavan began stretching his legs, saying, I do not know if I can stretch them. They say it's not good manners. <laughs> Poor Raj Gopal Ayer was standing there crestfallen and with a repentant look. He's frying his attendant. Bhagavan is, after all, full of compassion. He stretched out his legs as usual. We all felt happy. Looking at me seated in, in the hall, he began telling us the story of Ivayar. This is a story. <clears throat> so he looks at her and he starts telling this story. <clears throat> Seeing that Sundar Murti was going away on a white elephant, which had come from Kailas, which is where Shiva lives, the Raja of Chera whispered in the ear of his horse the Panchakshari mantra, which is the Om Namah Shivaya, and got, it, got upon it to go to Kailas. So he whispered the mantra to the horse and he went to Shiva's holy mountain. <clears throat> Avayar, who was at the time doing puja to Lord Ganesh, saw them both going to Kailas and so tried to hurry up a puja as she wanted to go too. Seeing that, Ganesh said, he's doing puja to Ganesh, Old woman, don't hurry. Let your puja be performed as usual. I shall take you to Kailas before they reach it. Ganesh, of course, can do that. Accordingly, the puja was performed in due course. Waving his hand around, he said, Old lady, close your eyes. That was all. When she opened her eyes, she found herself seated in Kailas in front of Parvati and Lord Shiva. 
just the way it happened. By the, by the time the other two reached the place, they found her already seated there. Surprised at that, they asked her how she'd gotten there. She told them Lord Ganesh had helped her. They were overjoyed to hear how her devotion was rewarded. She was very old, and so she sat opposite Lord Shiva with her legs stretched out like me, he's saying. <laughs> Parvati could not bear that sight. She was worried because to sit with legs thus stretched towards Lord Shiva, she felt was a great insult. She respectfully suggested to Shiva that she should be permitted to tell the old lady about it. Oh, don't speak, don't open your mouth, we should not say anything to her, said the Lord. Even so, is not Parvati his better half? <laughs> Won't listen to Shiva. <laughs> How could she put up with that insult? She therefore whispered into the ear of her maid to tell the old lady about it. <laughs> that woman approached the old lady and said, Grandma, Grandma, don't keep your legs outstretched towards Lord Shiva. <clears throat> is that so? She said. Tell me on which side the Lord is not present. The old lady said. Shall I turn this side? Said Avayar. So saying, she turned her outstretched legs to another side. And then Shiva got turned to that side. And then she turned to a different side. He also got turned to the same side. So Shiva moved. <clears throat> Thus... Lord Shiva got turned to whichever side she turned her legs. Looking at Parvati, <coughs> Lord Shiva said, do you see now you wouldn't listen to me? <laughs> this is the domestic situation on Kayla. <laughs> <coughs> see how she turns me this side and that. That's why I told you not to open your mouth. <laughs> then Parvati requested the old lady to excuse her. It is similar to that when people are asked not to stretch their legs towards Swami. Where is he not present? That's the story. <clears throat> it's, there's a, story, a similar story in uh, the, the life of uh, uh, Namdev. And he was uh, uh, an ignorant and proud young man. And Yanashwar um, sent him to... Uh, to meet an old sage, and uh, the old sage was lying with his feet on the Shiva Lingam. And uh, Yanishwar and uh, Namdev came in and, and started yelling at him <coughs> and calling all kinds of names. And the guy said, well, I, I didn't know I was committing such an error to put my legs where the Shiva Lingam is. And he picked the legs up and he put it somewhere else and the Shiva Lingam came up under him. And finally, uh, Namdev uh, surrendered to him and realized that he was a great being. And there's another story. There's another story, which is, uh, I shouldn't tell you this story, but I will. Uh, once, uh, at, when I was doing a program at, uh, in Los Angeles, no, I shouldn't tell you, it's a nasty story. Okay. <laughs> I, I, uh, I had invited to, to our satsang, I invited a, a distinguished Swami from a different tradition, no one you know, uh, to give a, a talk and be a guest. And he was speaking there, 
and there was a young kid about 11 with his mother in the audience and he stuck his feet out. And um, I saw this happening. The Swami became so distressed that he jumped up and raced out and left. Literally what happened. And I was uh, shocked that, that uh, he didn't have as much knowledge as, as Suri Nagama. That, you know, that what does the kid know about such things and why does that hurt you in any way? Anyway, that's a nasty story. <laughs> and I will never tell you who that Swami was. <laughs> and then one more, one, more, uh, one more story. This one's really, really charming. And you get a sense of Ramana from this. And this was in 1948. She says, this afternoon I went to the ashram at 2.30. Bhagavan was taking some fruit. On seeing me, Bhagavan's face lit up with a smile. <laughs> you get this feeling of great affection. I thought there was some good news for me. After a while, he began saying, a letter and a photo have been received from South America. In that photo, there are six men and one woman. The woman is seated in the middle with a photo of mine on her head. So she's sitting there with Ramana's photo like that. <clears throat> on either side, two men are seated and four men are standing. I like that he's so detailed in describing it. It seems that they're members of an association which is known as Arunachala Sangam, which means the, like satsang of Arunachala. In the letter it is written thus, Bhagavan, we cannot go over to your presence. You're in South America. We are sending from here only our reverential salutations to you and are doing spiritual practices, sadhana, we want your blessings. They sent a prepaid envelope also. <laughs> and Ramana says, where is South America and where are we? <laughs> you see, <laughs> he arrived on the hill at the age of 16, had no education and uh, didn't care about anything like that. And even the scriptures he learned after, afterwards. So this sweet naivety, isn't it? Where is South America? Uh, did any of them come, ever come here, I asked? Bhagavan replied, they do not seem to have come. I remember to have seen that lady sometime. How they've heard about me, I do not know. <laughs> now, the, in 19, by 1948, he's actually quite well known around the whole world because um, Paul Brunton had visited the ashram around 1930. And then he'd written the book, uh, A Search in Secret India, which became quite a popular bestseller. And he talked about Ramana. And then uh, later on, uh, Somerset Maugham visited there. And so it, it was well known among spiritual seekers about Ramana. But he says, I don't, I don't know how they know about me. <clears throat> um, Where's it go, what did I say? How they heard about me, I don't know. They've written saying they've read our books and started sadhana. South America is the southern end of America. <laughs> they have respect for me. Why that is so, I cannot say. He has no idea <laughs> why. <clears throat> and then uh, Suri Nagama said, devotion has no bounds of distance, has I, I asked. Has it? 
And he said, no, that's, not, that's so. That lady has kept my photo on her head. How could she have known about me, said Bhagavan. <clears throat> and uh, Sri Nagama said, when the sun rises, will not the light be seen by the whole world? And, and he says, that is all right. Seven or eight years back, a lady came from Europe to see me. As soon as she landed, she did not stop anywhere, but came, but came straight here. After sitting in the hall for half an hour, she got up, prostrated before me, took leave, went round the ashram, and left immediately. She went straight to Colombo, and as she got into the steamer there, wrote me a letter. Bhagavan, having heard about you, I had a desire to see you. My desire is fulfilled. I have now no desire to see anyone else in this country. Hence, I am taking this steamer. That was what she wrote. Rather strange, said Bhagavan. <laughs> I said to Bhagavan, with a desire to see the form of Brahman, and with the help of the divine sight given by Lord Krishna, Dhritarashtra saw Brahman. This is in the, in the Mahabharata. Dhritarashtra is famous as the blind king in uh, the Bhagavad Gita. And this is how he went blind, according to the story. So uh, he was given the divine sight. He saw Brahman everywhere. Uh, Dhritarashtra saw Brahman, and when the form disappeared, he told Krishna, after seeing your sacred form, the form of Krishna everywhere, I do not wish to see any other, so please take away my sight. <clears throat> take away the sight you've given me. So he didn't want to see anything more. He's seen the Lord's form. Just like that, this lady did not feel like seeing anything else in India after seeing you. She's explaining to Bhagavan. He, she'd seen enough. She'd seen everything by seeing him. For devotion, there's no difference between men and women, is there? No, there's no difference, said Bhagavan. So that's the story. How cute is that? Great. <clears throat> So, so let's meditate and uh, uh, in honor of uh, Bhagavan Ramana Maharshi let's meditate on the self and you can we'll meditate for 10 minutes <clears throat> turn within And ask yourself, who am I? But not to have an intellectual discussion of that topic, but just to get in touch with the feeling of I. That's very familiar to us, I. What does your I feel like? And hold on to that I, and contemplate that I, and be with that I, and feel that I. Gradually, as we move from the mind to the self, we center in that I. We don't run after different thoughts and fantasies, fancies of the mind. We center ourselves in our beingness, which we can access as the feeling of I. So meditate, Baba would say meditate on the self. Meditate on that which is the core of your being. And that's true self-inquiry. So let's meditate on the self for 10 minutes. And once again, with great respect and love, 
I welcome you all with all my heart. Satyanath Maharaj Ki Jai. Let's meditate. Hi, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not check out Swamiji's latest book, Ganesh Pri Days, Memoirs of a Western Yogi. It's about the time he spent in India with his guru, Baba Muktananda, in the 1970s, and it's a great read. To get a copy, go to GaneshPriDays.com. That's G-A-N-E-S-H-P-U-R-I, days.com. Wherever you are in the world, you can get the book on Kindle or print it in your own country.